It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and I'm not saying that I'd applaud a near-future dystopian regime that targets and incarcerates immigrants, but please, please tell me they got Bieber. I'm joined on this episode by returning guest Jenna, who is a Star Trek fan, a comic collector, and an engineer, and a performer with Transvestite Soup, performing the Rocky Horror Picture Show on the last Saturday of every month at the Uptown Theater in Minneapolis. Jenna, welcome to the show. Hi. Glad to be back. How are you doing? You got married recently, didn't you? Yeah, I did. About November. So two months. <laughs> how's, uh, how's married life treating you? About the same as single life, you know. Yeah. Is your husband <laughs> as, big, uh, as big of a geek as you are? Oh, yeah. He loves Star Trek and Star Wars, and he's a big online gamer. That's So there's a lot of uh, sort of like matching between your, your geek circles then. Yeah, we pretty much anything the other one doesn't like. The the one of us doesn't like, the other one likes. So okay, there's no fighting over. We encompass over everything. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. There's no uh, fighting over. I want to watch uh, Attack on Titan. No, I want to watch Star Trek. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, welcome back aboard. Today we'll be talking about Past Tense, Parts 1 and 2, the 11th and 12th episodes of the third season of Deep Space Nine. It's a two-parter that deals with race and discrimination, poverty, homelessness, economic inequality, white privilege, immigration, the responsibilities of government to its citizenry, class divisions, censorship, the rights of the mentally ill, civil disobedience, and if it sounds like I'm just reading off of today's newspaper here, that fact will not go unexplored in this discussion. To continue the print news metaphor uh, below the fold, these episodes also feature time travel, predestination paradox, aliens among us, the potential erasure of the United Federation of Planets, and Clint Howard, God help us. <laughs> uh, there's eerie parallels to our current sociopolitical climate in these episodes, and we will definitely get to those as we continue. But why did you want to talk about this episode specifically? Um, a lot of it was just when I wanted to do it. It was right before the election, and things were starting to look a little eerie. Uh, the interesting thing is that this episode takes place august 30th 2004 you know seven yes. years from now that's right so a little eerie with all the it, things yeah. <laughs> it is and we had talked about this uh covering this episode i think for the election and of course now we are where we are now and you know as a as an American and just a human being, like I'm aghast that we have to even talk about this stuff. But the the broadcaster part of me is like, yes, perfect, perfect timing. So hopefully uh, we can do this justice. Uh, Past tense was also eerily prescient uh, of its current times as well. Uh, while this episode was being filmed in 1994 in L.A., of course, um, the then mayor of L.A., along with the L.A. City Council, had proposed creating fenced-off sections of downtown L.A. that would be set aside for occupation by the homeless. And that freaked out the cast a little bit, apparently. They felt like yeah. their reality was sort of seeping into their fiction or vice versa. And I have to say, I'm wondering if uh, Ira Stephen Bear powers his typewriter with chronotons. Probably. He's had a few things, as far as I remember. 
Yeah, he gets um, quite a lot right in this episode, and we can talk about that. Um, I think this episode hits just about every word in a current CNN.com word cloud. Uh, I think the only thing that misses, <laughs> the only thing it misses is uh, is fake news. I think as a social topic, the actual word Trump, <laughs> or that. Yes, uh, I think so. Um, well, let's talk about something potentially fun before we get down and dirty. Um, I know that you are a New Mutants fan. Are you anticipating the new movie coming out next year? I am excited. I am ecstatic for it. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be really good. Yeah. Which, I mean, they've, you know, they've gotten us before. <laughs> Once burned. But yeah. the fact that it's supposedly going to adapt the Demon Bear saga, that's going to be tough. But if it pays off, it's, it should be great. Yeah, they've got, uh, they're planning on having uh, Ileana in it, Magic. And, right. Uh, including Lockheed the dragon. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting thing. Hopefully they avoid some of the uh, the less good parts of it, like uh, 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 red-facing, what the yeah, native version like, uh, of blackface. Right, exactly. Yeah, two people becoming uh, Indians against their will, and then that's they're just Indians from now on. Yep. A little strange. Mm-hmm. Not sure what Claremont was going for there. A little uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think there's a cast list necessarily, but I think the uh, odds are on um, Anya Taylor-Joy playing Magic, which is, she's, I don't know if you've seen The Witch, uh, but she's great in that. No, I haven't seen her yet. Yeah, um, that should be really great. And it's written by the people that wrote um, The Fault in Our Stars, so. Really? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, your mileage might might vary on that, but uh, a movie that was, I think, pretty well reviewed. Oh, I thought you meant the author, John Green. No, not that John Green. I meant the people that adapted the yeah the uh, the screenplay. Yeah, although that might be interesting too. Yeah, I know he's a pretty much comic book geek. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, okay. uh, Let's let's stop putting it off. Let's talk about past tense. Uh, We're talking past tense, part one and part two. Of course, the eleventh and twelfth episodes of the third season. Uh, Part one aired on January second of nineteen ninety five, and part two aired the next week, January ninth of ninety five. Part one. Uh, was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, who wrote uh, A Fistful of Datas for TNG, and he was a staff writer on DS9. And the story came from Wolf and his frequent writing partner, Iris Stephen Bear, who was a producer on The Next Generation, and he was an executive producer on DS9, and he had over 50 DS9 writing credits to his name. So his jam hands are all over the series. And he, along with uh, Wolf and, of course, later his later writing partner, Hans Beemler, were responsible for the Dominion War story arc on DS9. One of my favorites. And... Yeah, it's great. And um, I'm not sure uh, if you've been tracking this, but he's also working on a DS9 documentary, which will be produced by Adam Nimoy. That would be awesome. Which is supposed to come out this year, and it's supposed to be the definitive history of DS9. And also he's gotten like the major players in the writing room together, and they're going to sort of pitch or kind of uh, outline a season eight for DS9, if, if it were to go on. That would be really awesome. Uh, I I always think that Deep Space Nine needs a little bit more... Love. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, and they they definitely cram a lot into the last two hours of the show. I mean, I could if you let it breathe a little bit, see where some of the, that stuff goes a little more. Oh, yeah. I They've got some pretty good uh, books that aren't quite yeah. canon. I think yeah. it's considered beta canon, not alpha canon, which is uh-huh. just the movies and the Star Trek and the uh, TV shows. And then right. beta canon is including all the TV sh- or including all the books. Right, and right. There's a book that comes out directly after the series ends called avatar that is okay. really interesting uh okay. lieutenant Ro lauren from uh next generation ends up replacing odo oops spoilers <laughs> okay i know hey, that's a setup that's not a spoiler that sounds great 
Uh, the one drawback is that apparently they couldn't get Avery Brooks for the documentary. I'm not sure what the deal was with that, but as you and I have talked about on the show before, he is his own person for yeah. sure. You can't make him do anything that he doesn't want to do. Uh, part one was directed by Riza Buddy, a TV and feature director who directed five episodes of DS9, uh, including Paradise Lost as well, which is a good one. And the star date for the first episode begins at 48481.2. And then, of course, the action shifts to the 30th of August, going through the 1st of September, the year 2024. And part two was directed by Jonathan Frakes, who needs no introduction as Commander Riker. But most people may or may not know, he also has 14 directorial credits on Star Trek shows. And of course, he directed the features First Contact and Insurrection. Mm -hmm. And the teleplay in this case for the part two was Ira Stephen Bear and Renee Echevarria, who's another staff writer and producer, and also a story editor on Next Gen and DS9. And the story is by, of course, uh, what, what is it in, in notation? Ibid, the, the former, formerly quoted people, Ira Stephen Beer and Robert Hewitt Wolf. Jenna, your assignment, if you can, and this is a two-parter, so this is taken into account, is to give us a 50-word synopsis of Past Tense Parts 1 and 2. Uh... Oh, crap. <laughs> Going back in time, everything goes to hell. Oops. <laughs> Sp sparse. You didn't even make a haiku on that one. Uh, <laughs> no, that's very economical. I think that works. Uh, just throw chronotons in there and uh, maybe gimmies or something, and we'd be good. Chronotons, dimmies, dims, gimmies, uh, <laughs> right. uh, race, and uh, oh, pretty lady know. gets treated nicely. Right, pretty pretty lady gets treated nicely. Film at eleven. Uh, from its inception, uh, this episode, of course, had a focus on homelessness. Uh, the original working title of Wolf's script was "Cold and Distant Stars," and it was to feature Cisco going back in time and ending up homeless and institutionalized in the twentieth century. Uh, in fact, I think the episode that we discussed the last time you were on the show, "Far Beyond the Stars," was also originally entitled "Cold and Distant Stars." Um, and it was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beemler, and it involved time travel and social issues. Um, Bear added the elements of the sanctuary dis districts and the bell riots to this original script, and he was reportedly inspired by the Attica prison riot in 1971, where the inmates rioted over similar um, unsuitable living conditions and physical brutality. And, of course, it's inspired by current events. Uh, we mentioned before the city of L.A. trying to deal with homeless people. Much of Past Tense Part 1 was shot at the Paramount Studios' backlot. Um, it was the first major use of the backlot by Trek since The Big Goodbye, which, of course, had all those big um, street scenes, and, ironically, featured Dick Miller as well. So he must have really known his way around that backlot by now. <laughs> uh, this is the first mention of Starfleet's temporal displacement policy. It's the first DS9 episode to feature Earth, and it's the first DS9 episode to not feature DS9. And I, that interests me because... I feel like a lot, I mean, I like many, if not all, of the DS9 episodes, but a lot of the really memorable ones that people want to talk about don't seem to take place on DS9, <laughs> like Far Beyond the Stars as well. Like, there's there's no real station at all, just sort of at the beginning and the end. Yeah. This is also, I believe, the last DS9 two-parter. Uh, future episodes would feature more serialized elements, of course, and ongoing storylines. Uh, or in the case of the finale, it would just be just a two-hour movie, basically. Um just as uh, Cisco stands in for Gabriel Bellin in 2024, the man that plays Bell in the episode stands in for Avery Brooks. Uh, it's his stuntman and his, uh, his stand-in, John Lendell Bennett. And fun fact, this is his second death by stabbing this season, with him previously being stabbed to death as Kozak the Klingon in the episode House of Quark. 
And, of course, Clint Howard plays Grady in this episode. It was a role originally written for Iggy Pop. He'd later which, come back in a very terrible, terrible Frankie episode. <laughs> yeah, and that one's not so great, no. But <laughs> it's interesting to think. I mean, it was clear uh, that Bear uh, had a, has got a thing for Iggy Pop and wanted him in this episode. Oh, yeah. I'm trying trying to imagine how that role would have been if Iggy Pop had played him. Um, better or worse? I don't, I'm not really sure. Uh, as I mentioned on the show, uh, on a previous show, when we discussed City on the Edge of Forever, there's a poster in this episode that promotes a boxing rematch between Kid McCook and Mike Mason. The first matchup of these two was advertised on a similar poster in the episode City on the Edge of Forever. Um, fun little fact about TV scheduling. Uh, this was the last episode to air before the premiere of Voyager on January 16th of 95. And it's also the last of a 12-episode run that featured where DS9 was the only uh, Star Trek series on the air, um, not playing contiguous with, a, with another series. And of course, this episode features the veteran character actor Dick Miller. Kind of fun fact, uh, in addition to mentioning the Paramount backlot, uh, Cisco discusses the London Kings and Buck Buckeye, and they are first mentioned in the episode The Big Goodbye in a conversation with Dick Miller. Dick Miller also appears or can be heard in the Justice League Unlimited episode, The Ties That Bind, as the voice of Oberon, and Michael Dorn is the voice of Calabac in that episode as well. But that's all well and good. Let's talk about the episode itself. Um, I want to say, first of all, just divorced of any consideration of social issues, these episodes together do feel like they may have started as a pitch to return to the guardian and forever from city on the edge of forever. There's a lot of parallels in the action of of the uh, episodes and the idea that, you know, a change in history um, needs to be mended uh, or else the Federation is finished. Um, City is somewhat light on social issues. Uh, It does feature Joan Collins preaching from the start of the depression that that man is destined for more, but past tense kind of flips that because where city ends up having high personal stakes and it ends very bitterly. I think past tense is, is fraught throughout, but it ends on a ultimately higher note, suggesting that humankind is going to figure things out eventually. Yeah. Though how, I'm not sure. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. How do you think that humanity does get past this? I mean, the, the, the history of the future in Star Trek, it, it's not exactly laid out perfectly, but we know in Trek chronology, like World War Three starts in 2026, I think, just two years after the events of this episode. So Cisco's right that big changes are coming after the Bell Riots, but he kind of leaves out the part where 600 million people are going to die over the next 25 years. I think the the idea of how it gets better is just... Uh, people seem to have an anti-intelligent view, or intelligence view right now. Mm-hmm. And science is just not regarded as fact. It's got, regarded as whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Um, and I think social chaos just gets out of it so badly that they just have to take a step back and realize we're we're we need to do something, and yeah. now. And do you think there would be like an accumulation sort of of events that would eventually build up sort of humankind's awareness of the things that they're lacking and the things that they need to work on? Yeah, I think the. Oh, go ahead. I think Sorry. one of the things that you can definitely see between the the history of Star Trek and from this episode is that after the the Bell riots, I think people are definitely starting to take a realize that you know there there's other people outside your social class. There's yeah. because I mean Dax ha- is dealing with people that are like you know high class. One of them makes a reference that. 
they couldn't go to the Alps or something because there were student protests. <laughs> right, when they're at their, their fancy little party soiree. Yeah, with Dax that's in the hair. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's in that's in the guy's office, and it's like he's having a party in his office, and then I realized, well, that's the set that they have. They yep. probably couldn't afford anything else for that episode. They tried to office redress party. it. <laughs> yeah, right. I love the – he comes in and out from, I guess, the hallway or just outside the office a couple times, and it's clear that it's just this silver-painted hollow core door. It's like, wait, how rich is this guy supposed to be? <laughs> Uh, I think that that's an interesting idea, um, the idea of a tipping point or perhaps a reverse tipping point. I mean, tipping points usually used as a negative term, but maybe just humanity living through the eugenics wars and the bell riots and probably similar conflicts and then hitting World War Three and eventually just hitting some point where they realize or at least you know, people like Zephyr and Cochran or something realize that there's we need more. You know, we need to get over this like we have to stop doing this over and over again and finally sort of leveling up to the Roddenberryan ideal uh, if that's a thing I don't quite think we ever reach a Roddenberryan ideal even in Star <laughs> Trek outside of the original series and a little bit of next gen but yeah yeah the yeah I I still really do enjoy the original series although it's a lot of humans sort of looking down on other races yeah. um, and talking about how great they are and that kind of creeps into this a little bit maybe i'm getting ahead of myself but i feel like cisco and bashir are right to criticize the discrimination and the poverty and the ignorance that they see on the streets of san francisco but they also have kind of a privileged viewpoint sort of temporarily privileged themselves it's easy for them to look back and to judge these people for not getting things right but they've had the benefit of hundreds of years of development in order to be in a position to to see that and to and to say that you know the role of sci-fi in prognostication is is something else I wanted to address both socially and in, in terms of technology. Um, I you know I think we agree that there's a lot that's that's gotten right here mm -hmm. uh, from a even from like a the idea of a tech businessman holding a lot of power. You know if this was if they time traveled to the 30s it'd be oh I'm a steel man or an oil man but this <laughs> is just some you know AOL Time Warner guy basically. Um, and the integration of computers into daily life, um, even them realizing in the 90s that tribal tattoos weren't going to be around forever. <laughs> but there's a lot that they miss, but they miss it in a, in a telling way. Like this guy Brenner, you know, he's this is what I got. Like he's a Internet TV guy. Like we used to think that Internet and TV were going to merge, although one is basically just eclipsed and absorbed the other at this point. Yeah. There's also no cell phones. Yeah, that's a. They didn't really guess that just cell phones were just going to be... And it's funny because it's Star Trek. Like, they literally have wearable computers. Yeah. But they just didn't... They have, they've got this, let's make the interface bigger, and it comes out of your desk, and it's got all these colors. And you're going to use a stylus on it. Because, of course, <laughs> there's no way that a screen could, could figure out that you're touching it. Well, at that point, they didn't realize that you could compact memory so much. So That's what's true. the point of yeah. having a... Like the idea of a handheld thing. So, I mean, even the flip-up communicator that Kirk has <laughs> is like a cell phone. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's interesting, um, your point about processing memory, but also the point about having a terminal and then just having the memory and the computation be somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, you know, just having... Because they had, you know, they, they nailed the internet, okay, because she goes on the internet and gets orders all of her Amazon stuff or whatever. But, like... The idea that you would just have a screen that would have its own processing power, but you're really getting the information from somewhere else. 
I like the idea that even though Judzia is from so far in the future, she's still able to like fake the computers into and hack it and get her own identification cards. Like, yeah, um, and that's <laughs> how. But and that's her. I mean, that's all on her because later on, Bashir and uh, Cisco are playing with a computer, and they're like, "Yeah, I, can you do? I don't know. I can't really figure this out." I just came up with a headcanon. It's that uh, uh, one of her past hosts. Uh, because there, she did travel to Earth previously with a past host. Uh, right. Uh, I can't remember. It was the gymnast. I can't remember. But it was uh, <laughs> during the original series timeline. Uh, uh, she ended up. Uh, she ended up hooking up with McCoy at some point. Okay. <laughs> I'm not joking. Her. Wait, gymnast, is this alpha or beta cannon? <laughs> uh, this is actually. Uh, no, it's beta cannon. I'm sorry. It's it's in an actual <laughs> book about Judzia's past hosts. Sure. I think it might actually be called that. Okay. Ho- hooking up with McCoy? Yeah. She... The Jidzia story? <laughs> that, that's awesome. And so her, her character was like a Hexor too then? Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, report card uh, looks good. Not straight A's, but uh, not too bad. <laughs> but it's it's just an interesting, like, look at the future through the, the lens, the extreme lens of the 90s. Um, well, we've avoided it as long as we could, but we should probably tuck into the social and cultural issues that are uh, up for examination. Yeah, here. probably. I think <laughs> I think you can chalk one more up to to Iris Stephen Bear that, and I think as you pointed out, that 2024 could conceivably be the last year of Trump's second term, or at least the uh, election year before. Yep. And I think, uh, just a side note, I think that's something that's kind of lacking from the script: um, the presence of a of a polarizing figure like Donald Trump, like a leader. Um, that's that's fomenting and directing criticism and restrictions against outsiders or, or those that don't fit into a political or economic elite. Well, the detective that they talk to when they're in the hostage situation um, yes. keeps referencing that she's in contact with the governor. So that, yeah, there is that's a, your yeah, intimidating that's presence, I guess. Yeah, uh, who's actually played by uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg, uh, who is Mercy from The Warriors. Hmm. Um yeah, and having the governor involved, I guess, does kind of make sense. That also kind of maps onto the Attica prison riots as well, because I think Rockefeller was governor um, at the time um, and was not basically was not willing to deal with them at all and just sent, you know, the state police in to just take them all out. It, it would have taken to have a figure like that. I think it would have taken the focus off the episode or the general idea in the episode of that. We let it get this bad, you know, this sort of um, navel gazing and introspection. Um, but the show never really explains other than just, you know, our own personal reality. I guess we can see it now how it could get that bad. And I'm not trying to blame all those problems on a figure like Trump or the governor or whoever, you know, clearly it's his supporters. And you can guess whether I'm talking about the governor or Trump right now. Um, that is uh, ignorant and scared people that made him what he is. But, but everybody that we see in this episode is supposed to be a victim. Yeah. You know, everybody is disenfranchised, um, even the bad actors here. And I think generally a good drama needs a better bad guy than just ignorance and want. I mean, sorry, Charles Dickens, but you need like a like a villain, you know, a figure. I actually kind of like that there's no actively evil person here because Uh it's just it's people that are stuck working in a corrupt system and they're doing what they can to stay afloat. The system is the is the bad guy. Yeah. It's just the people that are working for it are doing what they can because, like that that lady that was checking uh, Bashir and Cisco in, yeah, she she was doing what she had to to make sure she wasn't the one in this uh, sanctuary districts. Right, right, and she has that anecdote about how she had helped somebody else, and 
um, almost lost her job over it. Too. Yeah, that made up for her uh, terrible screaming earlier in the episode. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, um, she she does a pretty good job, but there are a couple moments like that where it's like, okay, that's that's we, a choice. We get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people are scared. Uh, yeah, so anyway, the wolf the wolf's at everybody's door. I, I can see that. Um, I, I do think this is an important topic for the show to examine, and I always love Star Trek's fearlessness in attacking social issues, but it made me wonder, what is it about sci-fi that makes it such a, a fertile ground for social allegory? I mean, I think man is a social and moral animal just in general, and so theoretically all of, all of uh, humans' fiction can do what sci-fi does with social issues. But, you know, you've got, like, Die Hard. you got Bruce Willis, you got some bad guys, the bad guys want to kill him, he kills them. They were bad. The world's better off without them. But if you take any sci-fi story just at random, like 99% of them are exploring social issues in some way. Why do you think that is? It's just easier. Um, I mean, then you can, because <laughs> you can, if you put it behind a sci-fi plot, more or less, you can, you can basically mask to the people reading them that it's, not quite the reality, but it's able to parallel sure. properly that you're not super uncomfortable reading about it. Anybody sure. who reads about homeless situations is going to be uncomfortable reading at it. You put it in okay. front of a, a episode like Past Tense and you're very interested in it and you want to do okay. something to help it change. Okay. So I guess I can agree with that. Um, I still, I don't know. Like, so you think that you've got Hotel Rwanda um, it's affecting, uh, it's about like current events and like a social situation. But if you put it in like a sci-fi form, it would be <laughs> like more marketable or it's just more, more appealing to everyone. Yeah, probably. Cause then you can pretend okay. it's not actually happening to you. Okay. Um, I'm both, um, heartened and disillusioned by that at the same time. Well, I think that's somehow. what sci-fi for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Hey, it works. Exactly. Uh, in this episode, we've got a lot of groups that are being discriminated against, um, and in fine discriminatory fashion, they're reduced to labels. Yep. Uh, you've got the Dims, who, and these maybe you can help me with some of these the, um, distinctions. The Dims are the people with mental health issues or yeah, schizophrenia well, well, I, or anything like that. Yeah. Or I got also that they might just be like physically infirm, like unable to to work or to or to um, function adequately. Yeah, and then there's the people who are called the Gimmies who mm-hmm. they are just people who want to work, but they can't work because there are no jobs. Right. Um, and then there are the people that are ghosts. And ghosts are people that have disappeared in the sanctuary districts and are basically just preying on other people that are in there. They're the abusers. Yeah. Well, I think that, yeah, and again, this is a label thing, but th- there may be ghosts who aren't abusers. They've just opt out of society, but are probably labeled for not um, as ghosts for not participating um, and not necessarily preying on society. And you mentioned with the gimmies as well. Yeah. It's people who don't have a job, but I think it's people also without a support structure. Cause I noticed that when people talk to like Cisco and Bashir and find out they're gimmies, they ask, they seem to always ask him like, do you have somebody you can stay with? Or do you have somewhere you can go? Um, it's one thing to not have a job or be seeking a job, but like, it's like people who, well, it's like, <laughs> like myself, like, you know, I don't have a millionaire uncle, so if I lose my job or, or I get hurt or something bad happens to me, like, what do I do then? Yeah. These groups reside in sanctuary cities. And again, it's not necessarily uh, a failing of the writers because they're doing pretty well so far. But they didn't seem to anticipate um, the refugee crisis that we're currently facing in our own yeah. world. Um, 
there may be foreign refugees included in these numbers of dims and gimmies, but the show doesn't really specify that. No, it's it's definitely kind of a when I originally picked this topic, the refugee crisis was my original wanting to base this on, but yeah, it it got too real. <laughs> Oh, it, it is pretty real. Yeah. I mean, in our reality, the idea of sanctuary is critical to these groups and it's currently under attack. Yeah. Which tells me that um, Trump doesn't watch Star Trek. I don't think Trump watches anything other than himself. <laughs> or even if he did, he would need the self-awareness to be even to, to, to make a, a connection or a parallel. And yeah. I'm not sure that that exists. Uh <laughs> Star Trek, uh, at least in its later incarnations, uh, I think is to be commended in generally rejecting an American-centric view of issues. Yeah. But I, I kind of feel like that gets them into trouble here. Um, and what I mean is that this is set in America. And sure, it's, it's San Francisco, um, so there's no speech about, you know, whatever happened to give me your tired, give me your poor. But San Francisco itself was a bastion of immigration, and it still it feels like a missed opportunity to me um, to not include that. The, the refugee, the foreign refugee aspect of it. I mean, they even mentioned that Europe is falling apart as well. And of course, you can chalk another one up to the writers of the episode for that one. Yeah, it. I think it just would have gone too overwhelmed if they had mentioned yeah. refugees as well. Um, yeah. I guess it kind of I, could be referenced in uh, when they get to the office in the beginning and uh-huh. they reference uh, if you can't speak English, one a translator will be provided for you. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's done in a very <laughs> sort of dismissive way as well. Of course, um, embodied by uh, Dick Miller being sort of like, they'll do. he's just reading it by rote. I don't care if you can't speak English, but this is what I have to say. And if you have a problem, don't come to me. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's just a bureaucratic sort of drone at that point. But he's kind of the guy that we see be changed by this experience. We know the world will be changed by what Cisco and Bashir do, but you can see it in this one crusty old guy, which is, it's, it's kind of a TV thing, but you know, we get like, okay, I think people could probably change and get turned around by what's happened here. Yeah. Let's talk about race in this episode. It's less of a factor, but it's still there. Um, I think, boy, I feel like I'm harping on this episode, but I'll say some good things at the end. I promise. <laughs> uh, I think, I think Trek, Trek shoots itself a bit in the foot. Uh, by not playing up the racial divides that must have still existed in the 21st century um, in this episode. And they do touch on it a little, but I feel like a lot of it is inferred. You mentioned previously that Dax, you know, of course, is a beautiful white woman. She doesn't experience the same discrimination and presumption that Bashir and Cisco do. Yeah, the, the, the black man and the man of Arabic descent are the ones that get picked up by the cops. The pretty white lady, right. everyone passes by and then asks if she needs help. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is there. I think that's a valid um, that's valid commentary. But then, of course, at the rich people's party later, where they're talking about their ski trips, um, the the one guy, uh, what's his name, Brenner and uh, Dax are like the only white people. And then everybody else is, you know, from central casting, uh, Benetton casting, <laughs> which is normally good. But if you're trying to make a point about the haves and the have nots and the racial divides that might be there, it just seems like that's well, which is it? Yeah, I think it was just they were trying to do it really subtly without playing the race card. Yeah. So that's a good I, I like that comment, too. Um, that's a good uh, point with the subtlety. I think there's a small concession to this uh, with the character BC played by uh, Frank Military. He's always calling Cisco boy. Oh, yeah. Which is a pretty charged thing to call a black man. That was uncomfortable. Century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
just a but the <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Um, but it comes from the guy in the Arby's hat, so it loses any power for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to talk about BC. I maybe you can talk me out of this, but I hate that character, and I don't. I don't think that he really works at all. Well, Cisco hates his and, hat. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'm not sure I like it either. Uh, <laughs> It's played by this guy who's got a cool name, Frank Military, um, and apparently he was a writer on TV, like he wrote for Miami Vice, um, so he's probably a pretty good writer, but I don't think he's much of an actor, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure, even if he was, that the character could could really be saved for me. It, it's the split, and this every Star Trek two-parter has to deal with this, but it's the split in the episodes that kind of kills it for me, because he's coded very much um, as a bad guy. You know, in the first episode, I mean, he stabs Gabriel Bell, like he starts this whole thing. And then in the second episode, we don't really get any depth from him just beyond. He kind of becomes like a alternately like a goofy doofus and just like a rage kill madman. Mm -hmm. And Bear has commented um, in other places about how the presentation of of that character is supposed to be kind of the key to the theme. Because, yes, he's aggressive. relentlessly in the first one somewhat in the second one but also we're supposed to sort of understand that he is a victim as well and i buy into that intellectually but i don't think that it really comes across on the screen um i don't think that if they had taken time for yeah it's fun to watch cisco yell at the guy but if they had taken time to really like you know zone in on him and find out what his story is and not just some story of pathos about how he lost you know, his wife and kids or something like that, but just to understand more how desperate somebody could be. Maybe that's too dark. Maybe that's too detailed for, for Star Trek. I don't know, but I feel like that would have been a lot better than like, Oh, we're friends now. Cause we talked about baseball or whatever Yeah. for an episode that everybody says is really great. Like that part just kind of falls apart for me. And then he gets blown away, <laughs> like, like viciously blown away. Like at the end of the episode, kind of deserved it, but <laughs> yeah, right. But, but I don't know how to feel like I'm supposed to be like, yeah, or like, Oh no, Arby's hat guy. No, I think you're just supposed to realize that, you know, not everyone gets saved. Yeah. I guess. Well, yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> that's something that, that, well, that's something that I wanted to ask you about too, is that you've got, um, our, our heroic characters. They are back in time. They are looking at this horrible situation. And, you know, Star Trek often goes to the sort of trope or the idea of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. It has to be really tough. You know, forget the temporal prime directive or whatever. A guy like Cisco is a guy of action. And I, I believe that he can see the bigger picture, but it's hard for me to believe that he'd be okay with, you know, these people dying, even though many more lives hang in the balance. And he does he does kind of skirt right between those because of course he throws himself in as Cisco would do and gets involved. But I don't know. It's that's tough. I, do you think that you could make a decision like that? Uh, I, I mean, you're analytical. I think I could, I'd feel terrible. Um, sure. the point I was going to make, uh, though was, uh, the, the interesting thing of seeing Cisco in this episode is him having to make the really, really tough decisions about this is, you're starting to see Cisco dark because yeah. he'll end up, this is like the first kind of glimmer you get of the Cisco that will happen in the pale moonlight when he has to lie to get the Romulans into the Dominion War. Right. And it's, I've always found Cisco so much cooler when he just starts getting really dark. <laughs> yeah. 
and this is and of course the you know the beard is is what sort of signifies yeah. that and we're we're a couple episodes out from him getting the beard here so I know that's when the show uh, starts getting great <laughs> that's when that's when the show starts picking up yeah uh just i'm just going to kick the second episode while it's down a little more um i like a lot of trek two-parters i think there there isn't quite enough to fill i mean you clearly couldn't do this in one episode but i feel like they are kind of plastering up the cracks a little bit with the um the odo and the um and the uh o'brien and the kira parts which are fun but don't really add anything i think you need it though you really need yeah? to get some lightness into this episode. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Yeah, because I was imagining like an episode where um, they go, okay, they beamed out. No, they didn't. Oh, my God. And then we just follow the the rest of the crew like in the past for the whole thing. Yeah. And we don't have to keep cutting back. Um, I think it just but, would have yeah. been way too heavy if you didn't have yeah. that. And you get the, the really adorable, like, you know, the hippie giving O'Brien – <laughs> and then Kira the flowers and the peace sign. Yeah. Or when they yeah. get up in the 1920s, <laughs> Kira just gets really shy. I broke my nose. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I love their uh, sort of um, uh, period agnostic clothes. <laughs> I love like, that duster. These are just some kind of general clothes. It could be any old era. Whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. If I was going back in time, I would not send uh, Kira and O'Brien. But I love them anyway. Because... Oh, um, no, <laughs> Real quick, I wanted to talk about Clint Howard in his scene. Like, what? What's going on there? He is a veteran character actor. When you see him, you know that something wacky is going to go on. But I don't know why they suddenly take this detour to go get Dax's communicator. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to say it's offensive, but the entire time they're talking about the plight of like the mentally ill and how people aren't receiving attention. And then they go find this guy who's clearly... It's got a screw loose. And they're like, okay, yeah, no, we're the good aliens. Don't worry about it. And they get the communicator, and then that, that's that's it. I think they just need to fill up a little bit of time. <laughs> okay, thanks for your honesty. <laughs> I think so, too. I'm still, I'm still trying to imagine Iggy Pop in that role, though. I think that would have been really interesting. It's funnier imagining Iggy Pop as a porta as the, as the homeless guy. Yeah, I know. I mean, he looks the part, so... Um, <laughs> I wanted to point out here, just as kind of a scene or a character that stands out for me, is that I think Terry Farrell is great here as Dax. Um, and especially the way that her character um, fits in immediately to the episode. Like, her assimilating, you know, is subservient to the whole side story of her showing us what's going on in the ruling class. But, damn, Dax figures this out, like, right away. There's none of the usual... What? I'm I'm back in time? What? Like, she just jumps right in. She's like, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, I lost my friends. Oh, my brooch is still here. And as you mentioned before, like, she's probably time traveled before. She's probably been in a situation like this. And so we see that. We see her experience. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Dax Symbian has woken up and not remembered anything and gone, let's go with this. <laughs> sure. I mean, 800 in the, years. In the present. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. Uh, is there a, a scene, a moment, or a character that stands out for you? Um... Probably, like, the, the thing that always gives me goosebumps in episode one when Bashir has the, his little speech of causing people to suffer because you hate them is terrible. Causing people to right. suffer because you've forgotten how to care, that's how that's really hard to understand. And that's just, yeah. I think, for me, that's just something that you see all the time. Because you see someone on the side of the street and they're homeless but you just you either don't want to make contact you don't want to make eye contact 
or you look for a reason to think that they're lying. Yeah. And it's everyone does it. Everybody yeah. with a court cardboard sign in front of them that says, please help is automatically ignored. Right. And, and yeah, and like you mentioned, it's, it's horrible having, you know, trying to mentally sort of suss out like what's really going on. Well, I mean, they're, it's on the front of the sign, like need help. Yeah. Losing that, just that common empathy, which I don't know what's in the water in the 24th century, but they seem to have that figured out. So hopefully we can get there someday. Um, as we wrap up here, did you have any parting shots? Uh, any last thoughts about the episode? Um, I think, like, just to lighten the mood a little bit, uh, <laughs> sure. out of everything that uh, they were so right about, the one thing they were so wrong about is that the U.S. would be using Celsius by now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And probably yeah, I, don't, I don't see that happening anytime oh. soon. Um, although I did like the idea that, sure, you have an account still, because when uh, Dax goes on the internet or whatever, the interface, whatever they call it, um, she's got that little, she uses the guy's key card. Mm-hmm. And not that you would just sit, you know, sit down and have a, you know, a DSL or a cable modem and just log on like you need to log. But at least they got past like there isn't like a stack of AOL CDs like on the desk <laughs> like, that she's had to go through to get her uh, access. Dax has to think of uh, a username. Spotty girl. 34. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. All right. Um, I, I I like this episode. Uh, both of them. Um, I think it's powerful in places, and I think the best thing that it does is it it keeps DS Nine on top as the most socially conscious of the Trek properties. Oh yeah. Unrelated to this show, or possibly related. Um, do you have a favorite episode of Star Trek? Um, I th- we actually covered it when we did Far Beyond the Hus- Far sure. Beyond the Stars. Far beyond the stars. Okay. Um. But I've been kind of rewatching Next Generation recently, which is the oh, one yeah. that I actually watch the least. Oh, oh okay. Which oh, yeah. I don't know why. I just don't. But I just revisited Data's Day, which is the episode where uh, sure. uh, Data's writing to somebody, I forget. Uh, <laughs> and you get right. to see O'Brien get married and, uh, yeah, right. and Data try to figure out uh, uh, cold feet. <laughs> Right uh, before right. you get married, and it was maybe it's because I just got married recently, but the episode just sure. was it just was a delight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the show. That's the point where it really starts to pick yeah. up. I think I'm glad that you got through the early uh, season. It was a chore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you excited for Star Trek Discovery? I am will come super out excited. You know, eventually yeah. for it to become a thing. I. Yeah. I've, I really want to see what they do because, like, the idea, like when you got when you saw Star Trek Enterprise, it was you know the early thoughts of what the future was going to be, and that's so different from what like you know the original series point of view is going to be. And yeah. I'm just dis- excited to see what they're going to do to update it into our point of view from now. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I think with the the kind of normalizing of geek and sci-fi type stuff, I was a little worried that, and in Star Trek of all things, that they would p- perhaps lessen the social commentary. Like it'd just be more, you know, shooting shooting explosions and and like the uh, like the new films. Yeah. But I I don't know. I think TV sci-fi is kind of where it's at as far as you look like things like um, Battlestar Galactica or The Expanse. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't, you know, social commentary is alive and well on TV, and I hope that they continue that tradition in Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, me too. I only can hope 
Well, last time you were on the show, um, you told us that you were going to work in the engineering department. And I think you said specifically because science gets you killed. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like me. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, that's all well and good. I just want to know how it's going in the engineering department. It's going pretty good. Um, I've been having some lessons with O'Brien. We had some issues with some Cardassian voles, but, you know, they... uh, we, we got him killed eventually. Um, you know, luckily PETA is not a thing anymore, so right, uh, right, we were right. able to not have uh, protesters throwing paint on us. Yes, that's always bad. Yes, uh, and I, I have to assume that out of all the departments, um, as soon as quitting times comes, you can knock off down to Quarks, and the engineering team is probably the best team to go with. Yeah, I mean that way we can always. If you got an engineer on you, you can guarantee that your holodeck is not going to fail. Uh, so I have to ask, this is just for Starfleet HR, uh, it has nothing to do with anything else, but what race are you? I am Trill. A Trill? Oh. I see. Are you a bonded Trill? Uh, no. Unfortunately, okay. I am not one of those lucky people, right. or one of the lucky Trill who are uh, blessed enough to be joined, unfortunately. Sure, sure. Like the, the, the 1% of the 1%. It's actually half of the entire Trill population is capable of being joined. They just make the rigors so hard sure. that you usually sure. break down before you get there. But I don't know that because I'm just an average Trill. Well, now that you've completed a second show, you will be promoted to Lieutenant. Oh. So you are now Lieutenant Jenna of the Engineering Department. Hey. Thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tessa underscore Sage. Or you can find me on Tumblr at the Vagena Monologues. That's the underscore Vagena underscore monologues. And if people are interested in uh, transvestite soup, where can they go to find out about that? Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us via our website, just transvestite soup. We're pretty much you always the first thing to come up. <laughs> I'd imagine. It's <laughs> pretty unique. Well, thanks again for joining You're me. You're very welcome. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.